All right. Nope. Nope. Okay. Check, check. There we go. All right. Awesome. So, what a mysterious character we have here in Joseph of Arimathea. Mentioned only this one time in all four gospel narratives, but obviously chosen and called by God to play a critical role in salvation history. Now, there's a few things that we know about this Joseph. Number one, he's a rich man. Number two, he was a respected member of the council of chief priests in Israel. And number three, and this is the most important part, he was a follower of Jesus. Now, do you see the miracle in this? Tucked away in the gospel narratives, a detail you'd be tempted to read right past is an absolute miracle embodied in this mysterious man who suddenly shows up with the gravitas to approach Pilate himself, to go to the ruler of Rome in Judea and ask for the body of Jesus. Now, the last time we read about the possibility of a rich man entering into the kingdom of heaven, things didn't sound very good, did they? And how does a member of the religious establishment of Israel, that brood of vipers that Jesus called them, how does he end up becoming a disciple? Friends, this is the miracle of the gospel, isn't it? Even today, how an unexpected, undeserving sinner like Joseph, with all of these factors working against him, can come to faith in Jesus and be saved. And not by anything in him that's better than anybody else, but solely by God's grace. What a story. And at the critical juncture of this story, God brings Joseph out of the shadows of history and onto the stage to play his unique role. Think about this. Had he not gone to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, it's highly likely that Jesus would have been dumped in a mass grave with other victims of crucifixion. But listen to how God uses his provision and his gifting to accomplish his will. Joseph, the disciple, is motivated by his care for Jesus' body. Joseph, the influential man, has the connections to secure his body. And Joseph, the rich man, has the private tomb necessary to house his body. And through this man, chosen, called, and gifted by God, the Lord sets the stage for the greatest miracle in the Bible. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Now, consider the drastic change of the setting. It says, after the Sabbath. We talked Last Sunday, we, we looked at Palm Sunday. We talked about how the streets of Jerusalem were filled with pilgrims and soldiers. It was chaotic. But now, after the Sabbath, the streets are no longer teeming with those people. The chaotic events of the previous two days are over. The pushing, the shouting, the violence has all passed. And now everything seems still and quiet as dawn breaks on Sunday morning. Here's the question. Is there any hope to wake up to? It's a fact. Jesus is dead. The light of the world has been extinguished, so why go on? And yet two faithful followers, notably two women, they press on. Now, why did Mary and Mary go to the tomb that morning? Was it out of custom? Was it out of decorum? Or were they visiting the tomb simply because of their love for the master and their heartbroken condition over his death? The promise of this new day that we read about in the text here is about to change Everything. As the psalmist writes, weeping lasts for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. And the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. 
Now get this, this is not a description of the resurrection. The angel rolls back the stone, not so that Jesus can exit, but so that the women can see inside and see that his body is truly gone. Have you ever noticed this? Why do the angels always say to people, do not be afraid? And the answer is obvious, right? Suddenly coming upon an angel like this would be so out of the ordinary. It would come by such, it would would be such a shock to our system that human beings are routinely frozen in terror by it. But after calming the women, notice what the angel says. You seek Jesus who was crucified. And that verb crucified is written in the present tense. Now, what does that mean? It means that Jesus remains the crucified one. He is the, not was the crucified one. He is the crucified one. And he will always be the crucified one, wounds and all, for all eternity, so that we will never forget the sacrifice that he's made on our behalf. The angel said, he is not here, for he is risen. As he said, come see the place where he lay. Four English words, one powerful word in the Greek. He is risen. Imagine this, the whole gospel, the whole gospel rests on one word in the Greek text. For if Christ is risen, then the Old Testament prophecies that speak of him are true. If Christ is risen, then he is the one who he claimed to be, the very Son of God. If Christ is risen, then the gospel message itself is proven true, and sin and death are now defeated foes. And if Christ is risen, then we who love him and trust him and follow him, we have a sure foundation for our hope that someday we will be raised to life too, and that we will spend all of eternity with our crucified Savior. Don't you love how the angel invites Mary and Mary to see for themselves? He says, come, take a look. See the place where his body once was. Note this. The angel doesn't say, just trust me, he's gone. The angel doesn't say, take it by faith and don't ask questions. Knowing the need for human beings to rely upon our senses, to be certain of things, God in his grace bids us, come and use your eyes. See see with your mind. See if what I say is true. What a grace that God would allow us to see in such a way. The angel then said, go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. Now, it's been said many times, and it bears repeating once more, if the resurrection were a story invented by the disciples, they never would have allowed the women to have such a prominent role, both in finding the empty tomb and in making the central claim to the Christian faith. He is risen. They would have certainly inserted themselves into the story if they'd invented it. In fact, it would have been an all-male you know, party at the, goss- at the tomb that day. It's the presence of Mary and Mary on that Sunday morning that gives the story weight and credibility. Folks, this happened. This happened. The resurrection happened. As historians measure the historicity of past events, the resurrection narrative checks every box. It simply cannot be dismissed. Finally, they de- says, the text says they departed quickly from the tomb with two things, with fear and with great joy. And why not? Think of it. Mary and Mary had just been given the most important message the world had ever heard. Friends, why is Sunday, the first day of the week, the day that the church gathers together? Why is Sunday our greatest day of rejoicing? And why is Easter Sunday the greatest of all Sundays? Because on this day, Jesus is risen from the dead. He is risen indeed. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, on this Easter Sunday morning, we do, we stand in awe of you. 
We stand in awe of the miracle of your resurrection. We're thankful this morning for the example of Joseph and the testimony of these two faithful women, all servants that you called and you saved by your grace to play such important roles in the most important event of human history. We praise you today, Lord Jesus, that you remain our crucified one. And because of the fact that you walked out of that tomb, that you are alive today, we will get to spend all eternity worshiping you as our Savior. Be with us now. Guide us by your Spirit as we continue to search deeper for the knowledge and the understanding of what you have done for us and, more importantly, who you are in your word. We praise you this morning in your precious name. Amen. Amen. Grab your Bibles. That was just the intro. Grab your Bibles. Turn to the book of Revelation and go to chapter 5 and look at verse 1. Revelation 5, verse 1. Now, we just finished looking at the historical narrative of the resurrection. What we want to do in the time we have is to now step back and see the bigger picture concerning Jesus. As you can see on the screen, the title of our three-week or three uh, event passion series is called The Lamb and the Lion. And just two days ago on Good Friday, Pastor Adam focused attention on Jesus, the Lamb who is worthy. And because we told him, hey, you've only got about 20 minutes uh, to preach on a Good Friday, he was really only able to lay a basic foundation for that te teaching. And I don't know, if you were here on Friday night, I, I left with my appetite wet for even more. So it's my hope this morning to build off of Adam's teaching from Friday as we dive into a deeper understanding of what it means that Jesus, listen now, Jesus is our conquering lion. Now, let's look at Revelation 5. Just to bring you up to speed, and I realize as I say this, that here at Oak Hill, in the 12 years that we've been around, we have never done an expositional study in the book of Revelation. I know some of you have asked, so I was waiting for a groan. And maybe that's in our future. But for now, I just want you to recall that the book of Revelation is a 22-chapter vision given to the Apostle John during that time that Rome had banished him for his testimony of the word, banished him to the middle of the Aegean Sea, to the island of Patmos. And the goal and the purpose and the promise of this vision is stated right at the outset. I'm going to put it on the screen. In just the first three verses, here's the goal and the purpose and the promise of this book. First, the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's why it's called revelation. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Friends, that is the ultimate telos or end of all things. The revealing of the truth about Jesus as the Christ and the Son of God and the Savior of the world. Second, to show his bondservants. That's us, by the way. Show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And third, here's the promise. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. So beginning in chapter 4, the location of John's vision is in the very throne room of God, in the courts of heaven. Have you ever stopped to consider what the heavenly realms might look like? Have you ever stopped to think, what would it feel like to literally be in the presence of the Almighty? Anybody else excited to see it? I mean, no, nobody wishes for death. It's just not in our, our, our human makeup. But, but there's something exciting about getting there and seeing Jesus face to face and seeing this throne room that we read about. It's such an amazing place. And the language that we have in Revelation is almost beyond imagination. John looks and he sees a spectacular rainbow of emerald that circles God's throne. And there's other th smaller thrones and there's these elders seated on them. And they're, they're clothed in white garments. They're wearing crowns of gold. 
And out of the throne comes flashes of lightning and and peals of thunder. Imagine the sounds and the sights of this, the glory and the power of the Almighty all around you. And there are lamps of fire burning all around and something like a sea of glass made of perfect crystal before the throne. And in the center of all this, in this amazing scene, we have these four mythical-looking creatures that worship the Almighty day and night. And they say over and over again what? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. And now, as we turn the page and we get into chapter 5, hopefully you're there, the scene is the same, but there's a shift taking place. No longer are we worshiping specifically the Creator on the throne, but we begin to worship the Redeemer. John looks back to the throne of God and he sees this really strange sight. Look at verse 1. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, what? A book. Or as Adam pointed out on Friday night, this is really, it's a scroll. And what is unique about this scroll? It says, written inside and on the back and sealed up with seven seals. Now that's interesting, isn't it? What does this scroll represent? Why is it sealed? Why is God holding it in his right hand? Verse 2, and I saw a strong or a mighty angel, likely Gabriel, the archangel, proclaiming with a loud voice. And now when you hear loud voice, I want you to imagine he's able to speak over the peals of thunder coming from the throne itself. So imagine how loud and booming this voice is. And he says this, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? In other words, who's able to do it? Who qualifies for this task? Now, here's what we know from the next chapter. The opening of these seals and the unrolling of this scroll will reveal to John and to us by extension the truth about what's to come in the future. A series of global events that will begin to unfold upon the earth at a future time. Events that will signal the end of the age. The fact that it's written both inside and out tells us that God's word concerning these future events is full and complete. The fact that he holds it firmly and safely in his right hand means it is written. It cannot be changed. These things will come to pass because the Almighty has spoken and nothing can alter his sovereign decree. Verse 3, and no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. So the call goes out, is anybody out there qualified to break the seals and open the scroll? Anybody? Is there any angel or man who is moral enough to do it? Any creature who is endowed with power and authority to open this book that God holds in his right hand? Look what John does in verse 4. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And so out of desperation, John weeps with great intensity. How will the children of God know what's to come if we can't open the book? But then he learns that the problem has already been solved. The heavenly council that's around the throne, they know the answer. Look at verse 5. One of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold. What's the word mean? We've talked about it a couple times. Look. Look, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has what? Overcome. So as to open the book and its seven seals. Now in the original Greek, John puts the verb at the beginning of the sentence in order to emphasize one thing. That this being is victorious. That he overcomes. That he conquers. Literally, the beginning says this. Behold, he has overcome. Who's overcome? 
And what does this mean? Well, the Lion of Judah has overcome. He has vanquished his enemies and he is victorious over sin and over death. And so he alone qualifies to open the scroll. He alone possesses the power and the authority to to release the revelation of God's sovereign plan for all the earth and all of humanity, and he alone is able to execute the decree of God. Who is he? Who is this lion? Well, Isaiah 11.1 says he will be a king in the physical line or the root of David. Genesis 49.10 says that this king, this lion, has to come from the tribe of Judah. Notice how distinctly Jewish those two titles are. What do they mean? Well, it means that this person who qualifies to take the scroll from God's hand and break these seals, he is the king of the Jews. The very title, remember the Magi came looking, where is the one that's born king of the Jews? Remember Pilate asked the question, are you the king of the Jews, what was written on the sign above the cross? This is Jesus, king of the Jews. But not just the Jews. This lion will someday establish God's kingdom on the earth, and he will rule over all the people and all the nations. Now, that's all good and well, but now comes the shock in this vision. Look at verse 6. John hears the elders say, Behold, look, the lion of Judah. And he turns and he sees what? Not a lion not a lion. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb. What? How how is that possible? John sees a lamb where the lion is supposed to be, and it's a lamb doing what? Standing as if slain. What does it mean? Well, this person, this lamb, has indeed been killed And he retains the marks of death upon his body, the nail prints in his hands, the wound in his side. These are wounds that our Savior will bear for all eternity, even in his glorified state. Continual reminders that he has sacrificed his very body and blood for us. But notice the lamb is not in a crumpled heap, in some type of death pose. He's standing. What does it mean? He's alive. So even here we see the resurrection In the book of Revelation, he's standing, he's alive, slaughtered, yes, but now raised from the dead. Hallelujah, right? Now take a closer look at the lamb. Back to verse 6. Look at his majesty. He has seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. The language here, the symbolic language, informs us that this lamb possesses all the qualities of a great king. He is sovereign, he is all-knowing, and he is all-powerful. And just to put the icing on the cake, verse 7 says, And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Think about that. Who does that? Who has the chutzpah to go up to the Almighty on the throne and take it from his hand? Who has that type of power and authority? This is God the Father transferring to the Lamb all power to judge the earth and mankind. All power to see these events that are decreed that they will be carried out. Verse 8, when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, and they sang a new song. What a beautiful picture. The throne room of God filled with singing. Where's Grant? Filled with, there he is, filled with singing. Man, for those of you who struggle here on earth with singing, it's time to start practicing. Man, start rehearsing. And if it's a struggle for you, if you're like, I'm going to come a little late to church and maybe miss a song or two. 
Yeah, we see you. Or you know what, listen, I, I don't sing well, or I'm just not into the singing. If that's you, I would say today is a great day to renew your mind, to think differently about worship, to start singing your heart out to the Lamb. Why? Because he was slain for your sin. Because you're going to be singing to him for all the rest of eternity. So let's practice now. Notice, by the way, not only is the Lamb the center of the worship in heaven, but the elders also present before him the prayers of the saints. Now, does that change the, the way you view prayer? Would you be surprised to know that the Lamb not only knows your name, but he knows of your prayers and your praises? He knows. He hears them. They're part of the very worship that's brought before him. That ought to change the way we think of prayer. Now, what are the lyrics of this new song? Look what it says. Saying, worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And shouldn't that be the content of the songs that we sing today? Our singing should always point to the one who bled and died to ransom our sin. Verse 10, you've made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. And as John watches, all the universe now is caught up in the wonder of the Lamb, the wonder of his sacrifice. And beginning in verse 11, John begins to hear this growing sound of volume all around him. And it says, Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was what? Myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. Now, again, picture what this might have sounded like. This overwhelming volume of sound. And they're saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Listen, I know people come to church sometimes, they go, what's with the songs that say the same thing all the time? Why do we constantly sing about things like power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing? Because that's how we worship the lamb that was slain. That's exactly how we worship. That's exactly why we worship. And we will do it, and we will do it until he returns. Amen? Amen. So I'll stop there, but you get the picture right. You get it, right? Friends, this is where all things are headed. This is the very goal of human history, the summing up of all things in Christ, everything in heaven and everything on earth. Eventually, all things will bow before the lordship of Christ. Every event of human history points in this direction. Indeed, even the things we see happening all around us today, how many of you guys think you, you wake up every day and you look at the news and you go, things are nuts. Things are crazy. Things are out of control. What is good is bad. What is bad is good. Everything that you see happening around us, all of it is moving in the direction of God's sovereign will. Do you believe that? Will you trust that? And this truth, this this truth forces us to make a choice. Every person in this room today has a choice. I said it Friday night, I'll say it again. No one remains neutral about Jesus. No one remains neutral about Jesus. The gospel doesn't give us room or permission to be neutral. You're either for Jesus or you're against him. Every single person in this room will someday bow in submission to the lordship of Christ. Every person here. Bank on it. You will bow in submission to Christ. The only question is this. Will you joyfully confess his lordship now in this life or will you be forced to bow at the judgment seat as you admit that you rejected him on earth right before your condemnation is proclaimed? That's the only question, but we will bow in submission to him. Now, you're asking, okay, so lots of talk so far about the lamb. Didn't we come to hear about the lion? Well, 
This is the surprising part of Revelation 5, isn't it? Lions are a symbol of majesty. They're a symbol of power and rule and authority. Lions conquer, don't they? Lambs submit. Lions roar. Lambs just lie down and die. We like lions. Human beings prefer lions, right? I said this Friday night, natural man loves power way more than he loves humility. He likes conquering, not submitting. But friends, let me introduce you to the one who is powerful because of his humility. Let me show you the one who conquers because he is willing to submit. Our Savior is a lamb-like lion. And he is a lion-like lamb. Think of it, the Lion of Judah was victorious because he was willing to take upon the role of a slaughtered lamb. And in doing so, he conquered sin, he conquered death, and he defeated Satan. Not just because he was a lion, but because he was a lamb-like lion. From a cosmic point of view, think about this. This was what we call a tactical defeat. So that a victory could be secured. Jonathan Edwards once wrote about this, and he captured the paradox. Here's what he said. He said, the devil swallowed up Christ as the whale did to Jonah. But it was a deadly poison to him. It gave him a mortal wound in his own bowels, and he was forced to do to him what the whale did to Jonah. To this very day, the devil regrets swallowing his prey. That's true. Now, I want to eventually take you to the end of the story of Revelation. This is just the beginning. I want to take you to the end, get you all the way to chapter 19. How long do you guys have? No, we're going to really quickly, what I want to do is take you through a brief outline of what happens in between what we just read and the end of the story in chapter 19. Here's what we want to know. What happens after the Lion of Judah breaks the seals and opens the scrolls? Well, let me share with you what happens. The first seal unleashes a rider on a white horse, a familiar rider, one who wears a crown, who rides out to conquer and Most interpreters see this as the gospel going forth to the ends of the earth. But what follows that in the next five seals is anything but good. These are the famous horsemen of the apocalypse. They are released, war, famine, and death, along with all kinds of cosmic disasters. And when the seventh seal is opened, a whole new round of cataclysms occur. What we call the trumpet judgments. Seven angels are given seven trumpets to sound. The first four trumpet judgments, listen to this, destroy a third of everything on the earth. All the rivers, the oceans, vegetation, even a portion of the sun, the moon, and the stars are removed. After the trumpet judgments come three woes. Tormenting locusts are unleashed upon the earth. Massive armies are drawn into conflict. And a third, think about this, a third of the population of the earth is wiped out. Then a series of plagues follows and takes out another third of humanity. Do the numbers on this. This is massive. By the time we get to chapter 11, the earth is almost unrecognizable. Death and destruction are everywhere and chaos reigns. And it is precisely at that moment that the glory of God's kingdom is proclaimed in the heavenly places. As the seventh trumpet is sounded, John writes this. There were loud voices in heaven saying this. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he will reign forever and ever. That proclamation sparks a war, a cosmic war in the heavens. John describes a dragon who wages war against the heavenly host. And the result is the dragon, who he identifies as Satan, is thrown down to the earth. 
Now you would think at that point the battle is over and it's won, but no, this dragon who's been banished from the heavenly places now takes out his rage upon the earth and he raises up what John calls the beast from the sea. That's the great antichrist. And the beast from the earth, his false prophet, and together they go out in the power of their father, the dragon, to deceive the nations and all who remain alive on the earth. And they establish a world system and a pseudo-religion of wickedness that's referred to as Babylon the harlot. And this Babylon will persecute all those who come to salvation in Christ during this great time of tribulation. Finally, we see in chapter 16 the wrath of God being poured out upon the earth in what we call the bull judgments. Listen to the horror. Malignant sores come upon all those who have taken the mark of the beast. Every living thing in the oceans, rivers, and streams dies. The sun grows so hot that it scorches and torments humanity. Darkness comes across the land. The people are described as being in constant pain, having to gnaw on their own tongues to get relief. And at this point, the armies of the world representing Babylon and gnashing with anger towards God, they now gather and point themselves to Zion, to God's house, and they gather for one final battle. We call it Armageddon. They gather in the valley of Megiddo in a place called Armageddon. And John writes these words, These armies will wage war against the Lamb. Good luck, right? So, that was like a, like a four-minute just race through Revelation. Now, let's fast forward to see how it ends. Turn over to chapter 19. Chapter 19, go to verse 11. Now, Revelation 19 brings us to the climax of John's vision and to the second coming, the glorious appearing of Jesus, the lion who conquers. This is the most prophesied event in the entire Bible. And this passage in particular, beginning in verse 11, really is the most graphic picture of how God will someday wield his power of judgment. But before he does, in verses 7 to 10, we see something really important on the prophetic calendar. The announcement of something called the wedding supper of the Lamb. Folks, this is a party invitation that you want to get. This is that precious moment at the very end of history when Jesus claims his bride. The church can, that contains all true believers, he claims his bride for himself. All of his redeemed ones from every race, tribe, tongue, and nation, they're all brought into his presence. And they are now cleansed and perfected and prepared to live for all eternity with him. Blessed are those who are invited to this party, John is told to write. And what an understatement that is, right? Because not only is the church going to be at this Wedding supper of the Lamb, to be with Jesus for all time, but they're going to be spared what's about to happen on the earth. And what's going to happen? Jesus told us in Matthew 24. He prophesied it himself. He said, for just as lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. The sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Now look how, look how John describes it in the vision. Revelation 19, beginning in verse 11. Here's what John sees. And I saw heaven opened. How many of you guys would love to see just for a moment heaven opened up? 
to see what's going on, to see all the truth about what's in the next dimension. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, on his head are many diadems or crowns. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so with it he may strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. Friends, I know on Palm Sunday every year we talk about the triumphal entry. That's not a triumphal entry. This is a triumphal entry. This is the triumphal entry of the king, of the lion who comes to conquer. Notice the new titles that are given him here. He goes forth to conquer under the banner of one who is called faithful and true. What does that mean? In that capacity, he comes to judge righteously. And he comes to wage war. He will triumph in perfect justice. And he will punish every evil and every ounce of rebellion against his rule. At last, as scripture is long promised, every sin will be laid bare. Every wrong will be made right. Every injustice corrected. How many of you guys, you walk through life and you go, there is no justice in this world. Oh, there will be. There will be when the lion comes. His blazing eyes speak of absolute knowledge and discernment. The crowns on his head point to his authority to judge in righteousness. He is both all-knowing and all-powerful. And what about his garment? What does it mean that it's dipped in blood? It's a gruesome look. I think this is a reference to another prophecy from the book of Isaiah. In chapter 63, Isaiah the prophet is shown a vision of, of God coming in judgment. It's as though Isaiah were standing in Jerusalem and he's looking towards the south, towards the land of Edom, and he sees this great warrior coming. Here's what the text says. Isaiah says, Who is this who comes from Edom with garments of glowing colors? This one who is majestic in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. And here's what the warrior says. It is I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. And Isaiah asks, why is your garment red like one who treads the winepress? And he responds, I have trodden the winepress alone. I trod them in my anger, and I trampled them in my wrath, and their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption has come. Wow. In Revelation 19, this warrior, this Lion of Judah, is also called the Word of God. Reminiscent of John chapter 1, right? In the beginning was the Word. And as God's Word, He is the very expression of truth. He is the radiance of God's glory. He upholds and He destroys by the power of His Word. See the sword that comes from His mouth as He strikes down the rebellious people and the nations of the earth. Man, in the end, Jesus the King will unleash the fury of of God Almighty, and the blood of his enemies will flow like grapes put in a wine press. This is pretty graphic stuff, isn't it? It's intended to be that way. It's intended to be graphic. Listen, don't turn away from it. I know our flesh wants to say, well, I'm not comfortable with this. Our flesh screams out and it says, no, 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 no. I, I like the really nice, loving 
forgiving Jesus. I, I'm not sure I like the lion. Don't turn away from it. Don't succumb to the temptation of your flesh. Friends, we need to wrestle. We need to wrestle with the full nature and the weight of human sin. How it's affected the earth, what it's produced, how it's killed and destroyed, and yes, the punishment that it deserves. Remember, none of us are righteous. Not one person in this room is righteous. None of us deserve to be saved. Not one of us. We've all gone astray. We can affirm that, right? We've all lived to please ourselves. We've all thumbed our nose at the Creator. We've all exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and every one of us deserves God's wrath. Humanity is in one boat together. Sometimes people look out from outside the church and they say, oh, those self-righteous Christians, they think they deserve to be saved. They think they're better than us. We're not. Can we affirm that? We're no more deserving than anybody outside the church. But what Revelation 19 is describing here is God's perfect justice. His perfect justice. To understand that and to accept it requires us to start in the right place. This is what I found about theology. If you start in the wrong place, you will end up with the wrong conclusion. We have got to start with this truth. God's utter holiness and our total depravity. That's the starting point. That is the foundation of all wisdom and all theology. If you don't start there, and if you come to the conclusion, the foolishness that you hear from so many people out there in the world, that we are all basically good, and that God should tolerate our sin or look the other way, He should just let us live as we please, if that is your starting point, then you will never, ever grasp the truth of the gospel. And you will never see the lamb and the lion as he is. Absolutely full of both grace and absolutely full of truth. Well, let me wrap up. Maybe you're thinking, why this heavy message on Easter Sunday? Why talk about such things? It's a good question. Even as I was praying on this message all week, I thought to myself, okay, the, the lamb and the lion, Revelation 5, that makes sense. I didn't know that God was going to take me all the way to Revelation 19. Why so heavy? Why such a difficult Easter Sunday? Friends, if you're visiting with us this morning, if this is your first visit, first of all, let me say welcome. We're glad you're here. Honestly, we're glad you're here. But God forbid that I leave it at that. God forbid that I just be courteous and that's it. Because there's too much at stake. There's too much at stake. If you aren't covered by the blood of the Lamb, by faith in Him alone, and if you don't know the Lion of Judah who will one day come to judge the nations, don't leave here today without picking a side. I said it before, there is no neutral. Are you for Jesus or are you against Him? If you're trusting your eternal soul to a form of Jesus that you fashioned in a way that somehow comports with your wants and desires, if you're trusting in a set of philosophical ideas or even a set of religious rituals, if you're trusting in your own made-up brand of human wisdom, if you're trusting in some measure of good works that you've figured out, well, this is going to somehow earn me cosmic brownie points, if you're trusting in any of those things, even if you're trusting in Jesus plus some of those things, 
I want you to know this morning that the Bible, not Jeff, no, the Bible says that you will fall under the judgment and wrath of God. Not me. Take it up with the Lord. But there's good news. And there's hope, right? Is that not the mess? Is that not the message of the resurrection? The lamb has been slain. And now he reigns. And you can put your trust in him today. Today is the day of salvation, God said. You can put your trust in him right now. Now there's one last verse here in Revelation 19 that I want you to see. And we're going to close with this. Let's just look at verse 16. Because it's so powerful and so beautiful. On his robe. This is the rider on the white horse. And this sword is coming out of his mouth. And he, he comes to, to dish out judgment and wrath and perfect justice. And on his robe and on his thigh, John says, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That is the eternal name of our Lamb and our Lion. He is both worthy and he is victorious. Will you trust in him today? I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the heavenly city. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come and drink. Amen, Lord Jesus, come. Pray with me. Lord, we are, uh, we're excited that you have risen from the dead. And we want to celebrate here this morning. And it's good to celebrate, but it's also good to be sober in light of all of the, the truth about who you are is expressed in this great book of Revelation. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters who are here this morning that we would grasp the weight of this. I pray that we would understand the, the utter holiness that marks who you are and the utter depravity that marks who we are and then to look to the lamb who's been slain and to look to the the lion who has been raised from the dead and to say, that's my God. That's the one whom I worship. That's the one whom I trust in. That's the one who has redeemed me and justified me and saved me. I pray for anybody who is here this morning, Lord, who, who doesn't know these things, maybe has heard this for the first time, and they're on the fence. They're trying to play it neutral. They're trying to figure out their own way to get to heaven. I pray, God, that even this morning they would stop and they would look not to their own wisdom, but they would look to the Bible and say, here it is. Jesus bids us come and die and to take up a cross and to follow him and to trust in him alone by faith alone because of God's grace alone. Lord, you are mighty to save. I pray that you might save even this morning for your glory and our good. Thank you for your word, Lord. We praise you. In the name of the Lamb and the Lion, amen.